This recording was originally made to audio tape and converted to digital format. As we say in Anglicanism, I don't know why that's so damn funny. <clears throat> I want to begin talking about the holy war among the TV evangelists by talking about Gary Frazier. When I was about 10 years old, uh, my friend Chuck Watson and Cheesy Eubanks and I were riding our bikes over near Kim Nash's house, and Kim Nash and Gary Frazier and another boy, I can't remember his name, but he was Donnie Saliba's cousin. <laughs> and uh, these boys were in high school. And Gary Frazier saw us and and called us over and uh, took delight in making fun of us and objects out of us. We as 10-year-old boys and they as high school students. Gary Frazier had such a reputation. Uh, Gary Frazier was like Mort Durbin. Now, Mort Durbin's family owned the trash hauling company, and in those days, they literally hauled the trash. They would come by in a big pickup truck, and the big pickup truck was like Sheol. Sheol, in the New Testament, is that dump ground outside Jerusalem that burns forever. That's uh, the metaphor for hell that Jesus used. And, and Mort Durbin and his partner, Speedy Shelton, Truth is better than fiction. <laughs> used to drive this truck around that was burning all the time and pick up the trash out of the trash barrels. My mother used to say of Gary Frazier that he was like Mort Durbin. Everywhere you went, you saw him. And it was a warning implicit in this that I remember to this day, and that is the names and faces of fools will always be seen in public places. Omnipresence was uh, Gary Frazier. Everywhere you went, he was like Mort Durbin. There you saw him at the parade downtown. If you went to Cushing to the Dairy Queen, you would see Gary Frazier there. Mort Durbin, by the way, was interviewed by Lou Allard, the state representative from Creek County, was interviewed for the paper because Mort's father died, and he was one of the longest uh, living citizens in Drumride, and so Lou Allard, who ran the local paper, went to interview Mort Durbin concerning the death of his father. And he said, Mort, uh, let me begin by asking you, how old was your father? And Mort said, I don't know, Mr. Allard. He's older than any of us kids. 
Gary Frazier and Kim Nash and Donnie Saliba's cousin grabbed Chuck Watson, Cheesy Eubanks, and me. And the first thing Gary did was he went into a nearby house and came out with some firecrackers, which were creatively named two-inchers. You remember the two-inchers. I always thought that was somebody came up with a great marketing name for those firecrackers, uh, two-inchers, because they were, as you might guess, two inches long. <laughs> Gary was creative in his meanness. He pulled the handle grips off my handle bars and stuck two inches in either ends <laughs> of my handlebars and put the hand grips back on with the fuse coming <laughs> through the holes where those streamers used to be. <laughs> when we moved to Oklahoma City in 1957, that bicycle still had those hand grips on, but they had no <laughs> coverings over the holes. I got off easy. Now, the only uh, doctor in town had a flagpole out in front of his house. Uh, the very same day, uh, Cheesy Eubank's pants hung from the flagpole. <laughs> An evangelist came to town <clears throat> And he was at First Baptist Church. He was running an eight-day revival. You wonder why eight days. It gives him two Sundays in town. Now, Ronnie Bishop was a member of First Baptist Church and asked me to spend the night on Friday night. And the only requirement was that I go to church with them Friday night in order to get to go out to the Sinclair lease and spend the night. And so I was there sitting in First Baptist Church listening to this evangelist who said, not only in essence, but I remember this literal quotation, that if you didn't accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that you would burn eternally in hell and that worms would eat your eyes out. Now, you will want to giggle when I say what I'm going to say, but I don't consider it a laughing matter. That made a profound effect on me. It may have been a seminal kind of experience in my religious journey. Over in the corner sat Gary Frazier. Gary Frazier not only had blown the hand grips off of my Hawthorne Sears and Roebuck bicycle and hung Cheesy Eubanks pants from Dr. Starr's flagpole, but he was infamous for drinking too much whiskey and beer and driving his car too fast. Gary, though, I would like to have known him as an adult, because he had some sense of spark of life about him. He was not so much evil uh, as he was extroverted. In the corner, 
of the sanctuary <clears throat> auditorium of First Baptist Church, there was a small group working on Gary Kyle, uh, Gary Frazier. Gary Kyle lived across the street from me. I know you, you confuse those two. <laughs> the way they were working on Gary Frazier in the corner of the auditorium of First Baptist Church, I've seen since in the basements of fraternity houses in college. It's called a hot box, where you're trying to get something, somebody to do something they don't want to do. And they were trying to get Gary Frazier to go to the front at the invitation time uh, to repent for his sins. And there was great resistance, and there was some running back and forth with messengers from uh, the hot box to the evangelist. And the evangelist finally, you know, the, the evangelist that I used to see, I didn't see a lot of them, but I saw enough of them. Uh, they begin at the, finally at the end to get into that kind of used car salesman pitch where if you don't get a, a sale, you begin to say, well, would you just maybe take it out and drive it around a while? You don't have to buy it, just... Just take it out and drive it around for a while. And it was Friday. I'd been there four or five days, and, and there are just not that many people in Drumright to save. <clears throat> Must have had a quota that he hadn't met. And so we seem to be working somehow on Gary Frazier in order to justify the evangelist existence there. And so the word kept coming back and forth. Uh, finally, the last ploy of the evangelist was to tell a story of having been in a previous week in Muskogee, Oklahoma. You remember Muskogee, Oklahoma, <clears throat> made infamous or famous, depending on your theological and political view, by Merle Haggard. <laughs> Ray Wiley Hubbard also wrote a song recorded by Jerry Jeff Walker, which included Muskogee, Oklahoma, USA. He'd been in Muskogee, and there had been a boy who refused to get saved, and the boy got polio. That had a profound influence on me also. This was in the 50s. Gary Frazier did not come forward. Maybe it's like Willie Morris in North Toward Home, and Willie talks about going to a revival and didn't get saved, and somebody asked him why, and he said, you know, I just didn't feel like getting saved that night. <laughs> uh, Gary Frazier just didn't feel like getting saved that night. Now, I walked away from that incredibly powerful, <laughs> nuministic experience of, of uh, Southern uh, cultural religion. Um, with great respect for Gary Frazier and great disrespect for the church. Now, I tell that story for several reasons. Number one, uh, to set up for you what incredible prejudice that I have 
for that brand of Christianity. And it doesn't have to do with an intellectual commitment that, that one form of religion is better than the other. To the contrary, I don't really believe that one form is better than the other. I think some forms are better suited for some people than others. It's, it's not a logical conclusion about a theology or intellectual integrity, though those affect my prejudice. My prejudice against that form of Christianity comes out of my own experience and my own spiritual journey. Because it created for me such an intellectual and emotional, indeed even a psychological crisis, uh, that uh, I don't know that I got over it until I was uh, in my early 30s. The crisis had to do with what I had learned from my mother and father uh, concerning religion versus what I was learning from the church. What I became was what Karl Rahner calls an anonymous Christian, and that is to say that I lived out the values espoused by the well-known Savior from Nazareth, even had a sense that the Jesus was indeed the Christ, uh, but I was a little bit like Mahatma Gandhi who said, I love your Christ, but I cannot stand your Christianity. And it had a great inf impact on me and a kind of a, of a separation uh, that came about in me spiritually. And maybe uh, there are uh, some, there is some truth to the words that God works in very mysterious ways his wonders to perform, because that split, that separation in me concerning religion uh, made me like a moth with a flame about Christianity. And uh, here I am still uh, flying around the light. But it, what I really want to say to you is that it's created in me such a prejudice toward judgmental, fundamentalistic Christianity that I have no objectivity about it. And I say that confessionally, and I say that out of a, out of a plea for empathy from you for me uh, about that style of Christianity. And it says a lot more about me than it does about truth or about anything else. And so in my own spiritual journey, I have uh, sought to overcome the woundedness I felt that night at that evangelistic crusade uh, when I was told that if you didn't become a Christian you would burn eternally in hell and worms would eat your eyes and you would get polio. Um, and my respect for the integrity of somebody like Gary Frazier who didn't feel like being saved that night and the contradiction in all of that for me as well as the fact that the Christianity that I learned uh, at the lap of my mother, much more by actions than by words, was one of unconditional love and acceptance. Uh, even so much so that I think I remember my mother saying, which is now echoed in the collect for Lent, uh, God doesn't hate anything that he's made. And so I come about a discussion about the Holy War of the Evangelist with an absolute incredible kind of prejudice about 
that form and brand of Christianity. So much so that I occasionally feel, in, in a most humble way, I do not say this with any ego hubris, I say it almost not so much apologetic as regretfully, that I feel if I have any calling in life, it's to say there is another side to Christianity than the side uh, that we hear or I heard as a child, um, which makes us become Christian out of fear and guilt rather than a response to unconditional love. <coughs> now, <clears throat> the reason I have kind of uh, tightened around uh, this story, my own confessional nature of my prejudice toward that kind of religion is to say to you that what ought to be going on in me, therefore, is a kind of, a, of an overcompensation of projection toward uh, these people whose kingdom is now being brought down by their own sinful sides. Uh, the, it seems to me that what I ought to be doing is rejoicing in judgment about this, uh, saying a kind of I told you so, or at least a, a sense of rejoicing uh, about this brand of Christianity having its dirty linen aired publicly. But I can't muster it. It's just not there. I've even tried. Uh, I've tried to work up a good sense of, of joy about this story. Um, I've even tried out on a couple of people I, that I trust and who have been able uh, to know me as a person and don't even care whether I'm a priest or not. Those are the best people. <laughs> I've even tried out a couple of uh, sarcastic statements about them and and even for me, they've hung out on the air like frozen ropes, so they just won't go any farther. I feel nothing about this holy war other than great empathy, uh, a great sense of maybe even physiological change, of a, of a kind of a, a gnawing emptiness in my own stomach that, that is a pain uh, because one of the things that <clears throat> past my 30s that I have grown to know is that there is, in spite of all the diversity and complexity and so forth, that, that the body of Christ is huge. That if the church is the body of Christ, then the body of Christ is huge. And, and God knows that even that style of Christianity that is so repugnant to me uh, probably reaches people that... Uh, my pseudo-intellectual uh, sophistication will never reach. <clears throat> uh, even further, though, these leaders who are now fighting with one another, one of whom has fallen because of his own admission, his own vulnerability, his own sinful side, uh, are human beings. I remember watching the sands of Iwo Jima when there was great rejoicing over the killing of the Japanese wondering to myself uh, do they feel about death the same way that we do 
uh, Gary Kyle, who did live across the street from me, whose father fought in World War II, told me that they didn't care about life or death the way we do. And I wondered, uh, watching Sands of Evil Jima, I wonder if uh, that, that, Japanese has that, that Japanese man had children, and I wonder if they cried when their daddy died. I now know that, that all human beings share a collective reality. And so these human beings who are now hurt, hurt just like you hurt and just like I hurt. And it really hurts uh, when something gets broken. And it really hurts um, when one is embarrassed publicly. The second part of that is because we are all human and the body of Christ is huge. The next part of that is that I also uh, have uh, become a better theologian than I was in my 20s, much more of a Christian than I was in my teens. And I'm reminded very strongly, and I would speak to those of you in this room, everybody here, I'm speaking directly to each of you as we say on TV. <laughs> that the evangelist who was caught in adultery was brought before the world. And the world wanted to stone him. And the one who would come into the world to talk about unconditional love and acceptance brought him before the world and he said, which of you is without sin? Which Let her pick up the first drop. Maybe what we ought to be in touch with this morning is that there is no human being that is without sin. Even our most righteous acts are rooted in sin. And so a second reason why, <clears throat> in spite of my own prejudice and my own kind of experience with that form of Christianity, the reason this morning that I'm throwing no rocks is because I am a sinner. And I live in a glass house. And I won't even with the toe of a scuffed shoe, puts so much as a pebble toward another human being in judgment. The third reason <clears throat> that I'm not delighting in this is because of the vocation of the ordained. Matthew 25, <clears throat> as Jesus talking to a group of people. He is with his disciples. Now this is the famous time when Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. 
I was in prison and you visited me, I was hungry and you fed me. Inasmuch as you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Matthew 25. That story has been popularly translated as a story about feeding the hungry and the naked and, and visiting the imprisoned. I don't think that's what that story's about. I'd like to reenact for you just a moment what I think the story's about. And there's some biblical basis for this, and, and Reginald Fuller, who's one of the great Anglican biblical scholars, argues this point. Listen for a different ring about it. His disciples were with him. Let's assume that they were standing in a kind of a semicircle together. And he was saying to the congregation, much like, let's say, seated out before him. And he said, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you called upon me. Now, I want to tell you that in the new faith, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, You've done it unto me. He was talking about his disciples or his apostles. He was really talking about the ones that he was sending out in the world as human beings that he knew had a task that they were not adequate to and the world was going to eat them up because the world needed to project their own inferiority onto these people and we're going to tear them apart. Because Jesus knew that anybody who was bold enough to try to speak some truth of meaning, that they were going to set themselves up for ridicule, they were going to set themselves up for judgment, and they were going to become what the Old Testament called scapegoats. And that is that the people would put all of their sins onto a goat and drive him out into the desert because they couldn't stand their own sins. And so he said, inasmuch as you've done it unto one of the least, my ordained clergy, you've done it unto me. One of the reasons that I am not overcompensating with my prejudice about my brothers is because I know at the deepest part of my own gut, the incredible projections that get put upon clergy, expectations that are unreal, and judgments that are unfounded. If this story had come out of the headquarters of IBM, would it have ever made the newspaper? or your law office. Let me ask you, those of you who are in a institution of any kind, has anybody that you know ever committed adultery? <clears throat> your bank, your law office, your business? Let me ask you another question. <clears throat> Did it make the front page and were they fired?
I understand that I'm called by the prayer book to lead an exemplary life. And I understand why there is a double standard. I knew that when I came in. You know, for me to complain about there being a double standard is like a Roman Catholic priest complaining to his bishop that he can't get married. I knew that coming in. But I just want you to know there's one. Because I do. And that's why, and as much as you've done it under one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it under Christ. The people who need forgiveness more than anybody else are those who have taken upon them to be the lightning rods for projection of good and evil in society. They need your love more than anybody else. I don't know that anybody knows what it's like to have to stand up in one place week after week and try to speak the truth in love and be a lightning rod for everybody's opinions and prejudice and agreements and disagreement. And running the psychological teeter-totter from those who are thinking you're God to those who accuse you of being the devil. I know. Anytime somebody says to, you, to me, I want to give you a compliment, but I don't want it uh, to inflate your ego, don't worry. <laughs> I'll be hearing from somebody else within the hour. The third reason that I will throw no rocks at my brothers is because I understand what psychological, spiritual pressure is on anyone who takes it upon himself or herself to try to be a symbol in community of holiness. It's an impossible job. The last thing I want to say this morning is that <clears throat> I radically disagree with the theology of the religious right, most particularly fundamentalism. I radically disagree with it. I find it destructive and divisive and reactionary. I radically disagree with the kind of communities or lack of communities that are developed in individualistic TV ministries. I radically disagree with any church that is built upon a singular personality and there's no way to protect the church from that personality. There's only been one personality in Christianity. That's Jesus of Nazareth. Calls us and claims us. The reason that I am in a tradition is that it protect, protects the church from me and me from the church. And any time we have raised up an individualistic personality who builds a church around him, it always falls down. The one exception in our culture is Billy Graham who created a tradition, a system around him. I have great respect for Billy Graham. His ego, it seems to me, has never gotten involved in the claim that Christ put on him as a young man. He's an exceptional man. While radically disagreeing with all of that, I, though, will pick up no rocks and throw concerning the Holy War. I don't understand what all is going on 
I don't understand the precision of the political problem, but I know about it in general. I know about hostile takeovers. It seems that the hostile takeovers are not new to this decade. Now, <clears throat> there'll be those of you saying yes, but anytime somebody says that he uh, is a preacher or says that he is ordained, and by the way, one of the other problems I have with that system is that there are no requirements for ordination. In our tradition, we have radical requirements for ordination, and even some of us get through those. But the last thing I want to say is, in spite of all of those disagreements I have with fundamentalism and with personality cults, with the exploitation of people uh, through mystery and money, which is called quackery, in spite of all of that, I'm not so sure that the reason that I'm an Episcopal priest, I'm not sure but what the reason I'm an Episcopal priest is because of that evangelist in Drumright, Oklahoma, 1956. Now you're talking about ironies. Is that that psychic, spiritual split that came into me in 1956 may be the reason that I'm a priest of God. I hate to admit that. But it just may be true. But <clears throat> I still will preach the only sermon I know. And that is that I, I'm not perfect, and neither are you, and God knows it's probably a good thing we're human beings because we make lousy gods. The reason we worship God is because it won't work to worship one another. And that we do good works, not in order to get God's love, but because God loves us. I learned with my father that as long as I did good works to try to please him, it made no difference. He loved me the same either way. But when I began to do good works because he loved me, it felt so good. Now, we don't do valuable, good things in our culture and in our lives in order to get God's love. We do it because God loves us as sinners without condition. We need a new educational building here. <laughs> I can arrange it for $4.4 million. <laughs> Matter of fact, it occurs to me <laughs> that we might do that. <clears throat> God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform.
And that we do good works, not in order that God will think we're perfect. God knows we're not. We do good works because he loves us anyway. All of us, even the ordained. And it feels so good when we realize we don't have to do these good works in order that God will love us. But we do them as a response because things just go better and work better when we do good works. It's peaceful. And even to realize when we break God's law, Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. That even when we break God's law, God loves us anyway, all of us, each of us, even those that we don't like or disagree with, God loves them equally. And the real wonder of this scandal, the wonder of this scandal is that if you took a kind of microscopic view of First Baptist Church, Drumright, Oklahoma, 1956, you see three different creatures struggling with how it is that we're to respond to God in this world. You have an evangelist who probably didn't have a high school education doing all he knew to do, and that was to scare the hell out of people. You had a high school kid who was full of extroverted energy, who was no more a sinner than the evangelist, who for some reason had just enough integrity that he didn't feel like being saved that day. And you had a little boy who was watching the struggle between both of them. And out of that went into a psychic split that was only healed by going to college and seminary and finding that intellectual integrity and religion were not competitive. Now all of that happened in a moment. And the interesting thing to me is that God, looking down through the microscope, loved all of us equally. He loved Gary Frazier, he loved the evangelist, and he loved me. I don't think it's a holy war. I think it's just human beings trying to figure out the nature of God and the nature of being human and to see the places at which they touch. No judgment from this boy from Oklahoma.